This show was first broadcast on Free FM, Hamilton, New Zealand's community access media organisation. For more information on our lineup of shows and the role we play in the media, visit freefm.org.nz. Hello, it's great that you could join the program and be with us today. We're discussing a text called Mind Training Like the Rays of the Sun by the Tibetan master Namkar Pal. This is a commentary on another text studied in the Tibetan Buddhist tradition titled The Seven Points of Mind Training. Essentially, as you all know if you've been with us so far, it's all about developing bodhicitta, the wish to attain enlightenment to be of the greatest benefit to all beings everywhere. Now we might think that when talking about enlightenment, we're referring to our own complete liberation from suffering. But the bodhicitta attitude goes much further, recognizing that all beings are exactly the same in wanting happiness and not desiring even the slightest suffering. Also, we're all interdependent. Our existence relies on the existence of others, and if they were not here, nor could we be. They are absolutely indispensable for our conventional existence as well as our attainment of liberation and full enlightenment. Recognizing all this, how can we focus only on ourselves? It seems kind of shameful to say, even though I recognize that my present and future happiness and my attaining the peace of an enlightened being entirely depend on you, I'm only going to work for my own liberation and enlightenment. You will have to look after yourself. There's something a bit selfish in thinking that we will only work for our own good, don't you think? The bodhicitta attitude recognizes this and determines not only to gain enlightenment for oneself, but so one can best help others attain that ultimate state as well. Now that's all very well, and it's easy when we're feeling inspired to want to help others in the greatest way possible. We might want to save all the beings in the whole world, but when we take a good long look at our internal world, we don't find such a great capacity or even enduring willingness to help others caught up in the even mundane concerns. Isn't that so? Our selfishness is so hardwired in us that no matter what our intention, our actions are mostly driven by self-interest that automatically places one's own concerns above the concerns of others. It appears natural and normal to us. That is why we need some kind of mind training to help us transform this intense self-interest into a concern that always puts others first. After all, there are countless others and only one of me, so it stands to reason that the happiness of those infinite others is much more important than the happiness of just any single one, like myself. And that's why we study and practice mind training techniques. And not all that surprisingly, we find that the mind training not only helps us in helping others, but also actually helps us to develop the qualities we need for enlightenment. The benefits of the mind training, as we've discovered, do not materialize if we only practice during the good times in our lives. Well, let's say for argument's sake that half of our life is made up of good circumstances and the other half is made up of bad. If we do not practice during the bad, Aren't we wasting half of our lifetime? The teachings tell us to keep the mind on the practices at all times, no matter whether the circumstances are good or bad. And in fact, it can be much more useful to meet up with challenging circumstances than being able to practice at ease in our comfort zone. 
And this this is why mind training texts emphasize using bad circumstances to our advantage. There's even a name for it, taking adverse circumstances into the path, as you will have heard if you've been with us over the last few weeks. And part of finding benefit out of adverse circumstances is what is known as the four practices, that is, accumulating positive potential, purifying negativities, making offerings to harm givers, and making offerings to Dharma protectors and seeking their help. We've spent some time on what it means to accumulate positive potential and purify negativity, and now we're going to consider what the text labels making offerings to harm givers. But before going into that, let's take a moment to consider our motivation for participating in the program as we usually do. And as we usually do, let's try to make that motivation bodhicitta, the wish to attain enlightenment for the benefit of all beings. This is the best kind of motivation we can have because it focuses not only on the happiness of only one being but the happiness of all beings everywhere. Because the object and focus is so vast, the positive potential we can accumulate is also very great, much greater than if we were only concerned with one single being. So now, let's take a moment to consider our motivation. Thank you. Now, what is your reaction on being faced with a being that obviously wants to harm you? I think most of us will take personal exception and form a vengeful intention in return. If you try to harm me, I will hurt you, kind of thing. The mind training text takes the opposite approach under the heading Making Offerings to Evil Spirits. And Namkar Pal says, As explained earlier in the context of thinking about the kindness of hostile forces, acquaint yourself with love, compassion and patience specifically towards them. Now while Tibetan Buddhism has a psychological answer for just about any kind of negative behavior from those we can see, hear and feel around us, it also takes into account those non-human forces like spirits and so on that can have a harmful intention towards us. So part of the practice is to make offerings to such beings or forces and so as to speak get them on our side or at least appease them so that they no longer want to harm us. Rituals with this intention are common in Tibetan Buddhism and often involve making offerings to them. But as Namkarpal says, the real offering is love, compassion and patience towards the harm. From a Buddhist point of view, returning harm for harm just makes the whole situation worse. It certainly will not stop the harmful forces from trying to damage us, but it will increase their dislike or hatred. We might remember the advice the Buddha himself gave to some forest monks whose meditation was being disturbed by ill-intentioned non-human forces. When the monks found it too difficult to meditate, they went to the Buddha and told him of their problem. The Buddha taught them the Metta Sutta, which I have recited on a previous program, and when they meditated on that, the harmful forces were pacified and the monks were able to continue their meditations in peace. The Metta, or Loving Kindness Sutta, encourages us to see all beings in the same way a mother sees her only child, and this includes all the beings we cannot come into contact with through our senses. In his book, The Healing Power of Mind, Tulku Tondop, 
talks about relating to others in the light of healing and love. We should remember that the cause of others' dislike of us is our own negative karma. If we had not in a previous existence had dislike or hatred for others, we would not experience harm from others now. So the real cause lies with our own aggressive and selfish attitudes, not in the harmful intent of others. If we allow our aggressive responses to dictate our actions, we just continue the cycle of harm and aggression. It goes on and on and on. However, we have the choice to end the cycle, although it may be somewhat uncomfortable. It's not easy to be loving to someone that's trying to harm you. Tukutondop has this to say, and while he applies it to other humans, the advice also stands for other negative forces. We can be drawn into damaging emotions such as hatred or a craving for power over someone if we dwell on the feeling that that person is being cruel and unfair to us. Instead of nursing dislike and anger, try to see your enemy as intrinsically kind and good, even if you don't think he or she is really like that. In Buddhism, the most kind and gentle human creature imaginable is thought of as a mother being. Imagine your enemy as a mother being that has lost his or her way. This good person is blind with ignorance and sickness, victimized and tortured by his own emotional afflictions. He is endangering his own well-being by creating hellish worlds. If you can practice patience and compassion, your mind will become stronger and more steady. So this person is giving you a golden opportunity. He is like an employer who rewards you well for your work. To the extent that he is cruel to you and endangering his own spiritual well-being, you should be grateful to him for the chance to practice letting go of self and making true spiritual progress. After generating these compassionate feelings, visualize that clouds of warm, white, healing light emerge from your body and touch your enemy. By the mere touch of light, his body, heart and mind are filled with happiness. He is amazed by the feelings of peace and joy that he never thought possible. Allow him to celebrate and rest in that feeling. Then feel the warmth of compassion shining out to others and even bathing the whole universe in warmth. You could also visualize that light from your source of power touches your enemy and you and you both melt into one body of light. If you can meditate in this compassionate way, it will be easier to soothe your emotional pain and become more relaxed in the way that you relate to others. When you are calm, you will be able to deal with real problems in a practical manner without being blindsided by negative emotions. The power of compassion will improve your relationship and the energy of peace and joy in both of you. Now you may think that this suggests that once you do this type of meditation, suddenly all your problems with a negative force will be over, but this is not the case. We have to persist in the practice, doing it again and again. It's rather like an argument with a close friend. Out of irritation, you say some things you really do not mean to say. Afterwards, you may apologize, but the real remorse comes with a subsequent behavior when you have to make sure everything you do assures your friend that you did not mean what you said. Eventually, your relationship may return to the kind of companionship and intimacy 
you had before. In fact, it is almost certainly true that in the past you had a good relationship with a negative force that is now afflicting you. Our relationships are never stable and it is often taught in Buddhism that our dearest friends in this life could well have been dire enemies in a previous life. Due to our own or the other beings' afflictive emotions, things soured between us, and now, maybe many lives later, this being is driven to harm you. The harmful intent may have been growing over a long time, so it may take an even longer time to neutralize it. And that is why we don't only need love and compassion, but also patience in our dealing with negative forces. The monks in the forest continued to meditate on loving-kindness and in the fullness of time were able to pacify the forces disturbing their meditations. It is like the story Ajahn Brahm tells in his book Open the Door to Your Heart of a woman who attended his teaching and meditation sessions because of her abusive husband. But first, before that story, must come a story about the Thai government and forgiveness. Ajahn Brahm describes the situation like this. South Vietnam, Laos and Cambodia fell to the communists within a few days of each other in 1975. The domino theory current at that time among Western powers predicted that Thailand would fall soon after. I was a young monk in northeast Thailand during that period. The monastery in which I mostly lived was twice as close to Hanoi as it was to Bangkok. We were told to register with our embassies and evacuation plans were prepared. Most Western governments were to be surprised that Thailand didn't fall. The military and government were not as concerned with the Red Armies outside their borders as they were with the communist activists and sympathizers within their own nation. Ajahn Brahm writes that many Thai university students had fled to the northeastern jungles to support a Thai communist guerrilla force armed and supplied by outside forces while being fed and supported by local villagers. He continues, the Thai military and government found the solution in a three-part strategy. And the first part was restraint. Even though the military knew where the communists were, they didn't attack them. Ajahn Brahm was a wandering monk at the time and the soldiers would tell him where to go to avoid the communists who were known to torture and kill Buddhist monks. The second part of the strategy was forgiveness. Ajahn Brahm writes, Throughout this dangerous period, there was an unconditional amnesty in place. Whenever one of the communist insurgents wanted to abandon his cause, he could simply give up his weapon and return to his village or to the university. He would probably experience surveillance, but no punishments were imposed. I reached one village in Kaowong district a few months after the communists had ambushed and killed a jeep full of Thai soldiers outside their village. The young men in the village were mostly sympathetic to the communist soldiers, but not actively fighting. They told me they were threatened and harassed, but allowed to go free. The third part of the solution was to tackle the backwardness and poverty of the rural population. Even the king of Thailand himself became personally involved in building hundreds of small reservoirs connected to irrigation schemes so that poor farmers could harvest two crops of rice a year instead of the usual one. New roads were built and old ones refurbished while electricity was supplied to even the remotest regions 
where schools and medical clinics became established. Ajahn Brahm writes, The poorest region in Thailand was being cared for by the government in Bangkok, and the villagers were becoming relatively prosperous. A Thai government soldier on patrol in the jungle told me once, We don't need to shoot communists. They are our fellow Thais. When I meet them coming down from the mountain or going to the village for supplies, we all know who they are. I just show them my new wristwatch or let them listen to a Thai song on my new radio. Then they give up being communist. Ajahn Brown then explains that although the young men were so angry with the government, the government responded with restraint, not punishing or killing them. Through the amnesty, it forgave those who gave up the insurgency and finally it set out to relieve rural poverty. Writes Ajahn Brown, the villagers saw no need to support the communists anymore. They were content with the government they already had and the communists themselves began to doubt what they were doing, living with such hardships in the jungle-covered mountains. One by one, they gave up their guns and returned to their family, their village or their university. By the early 1980s, there were hardly any insurgents left. So then the generals of the jungle army, the leaders of the communists, also gave themselves up. I remember seeing a feature article in the Bangkok Post of a sharp entrepreneur who was taking Thai tourists into the jungle to visit the now abandoned caves from where the communists once threatened their nation. The leaders of the revolution were not punished or exiled. Instead, they were offered responsible government positions in recognition of what Ajahn Brahm calls their leadership qualities, capacity for hard work and concern for their people. At the time of writing his book, two of those leaders were ministers in the Thai national government. Ajahn Brahm then follows this story with another about two of his colleagues. Two of my fellow Western monks were having an argument, he writes. One of the monks was a former U.S. Marine who had fought as a grunt, that's a frontline soldier, in the Vietnam War and had been badly wounded. The other had been a very successful businessman who had made such a large amount of money that he had retired in his mid-twenties. They were two clever, strong, extremely tough characters. The monks aren't supposed to have arguments, but they were. Monks aren't supposed to have fistfights, but they were about to. They were eyeball to eyeball, nose to nose, and spitting anger. In the midst of a ferocious verbal exchange, the former Marine got down on his knees and bowed gracefully to the shocked ex-businessman monk. Then he looked up and said, I'm sorry, forgive me. It was one of those rare gestures that came from the heart, which are always spontaneous and inspirational rather than planned. They are recognizable by their immediacy, and they're being totally irresistible. The ex-businessman wept. A few minutes later, they were seen walking together as friends. Monks are supposed to do that. The reason for telling the stories about the Thai government's approach to the communists and the two monks is what comes next under the heading Positive Forgiveness. Ajahn Brahm writes, Forgiveness might work in a monastery, I hear you say, but if we give that sort of forgiveness in real life, we will be taken advantage of. People will walk all over us. They'll think we're just weak. I agree. Such forgiveness rarely works. As the saying goes, 
he who turns the other cheek must visit the dentist twice rather than just once. He points out that the Thai government didn't only forgive insurgents through its amnesty, it also worked on the problem that caused the insurgency itself, poverty. The amnesty worked because of the skill with which the government attacked the reason for the revolt. I call such forgiveness positive forgiveness, writes Ajahn Brahm. Positive means the positive reinforcement of those good qualities that we want to see appear. Forgiveness means letting go of the bad qualities that are part of the problem, not dwelling on them, but moving on. For example, in a garden, watering only the weeds is like cultivating problems. Not watering anything is like practicing only forgiveness, and watering the flowers but not the weeds symbolizes positive forgiveness. Now in our offerings of love and compassion to harm-giving spirits, we develop this positive forgiveness, letting go of the harm as well as creating the conditions for the spirits to become pacified and content. Ajahn Brahm describes how positive forgiveness practiced by a woman who came to his teachings led to such an astonishing transformation. He says, After some ten years, at the end of one of our Friday night talks in Perth, a woman came up to speak with me. She had been regularly attending these weekly talks for as long as I could remember, but this was the first time she'd spoken to me. She said that she wanted to say a big thank you, not only to me, but also to all the monks who had taught at our centre. Then she explained why. She had been coming to our temple seven years previously. She wasn't all that interested in Buddhism at that time, she confessed, nor in meditation. Her main reason for attending was as an excuse to get out of her house. She had a violent husband. She was a victim of horrendous domestic violence. In those days, support structures just weren't available to help such a victim. In such a cauldron of boiling emotions, she couldn't see clearly enough to simply walk out forever. So she came to our Buddhist center with the idea that two hours in the temple was two hours she wouldn't be bashed. What she heard in our temple changed her life. She listened to the monks describe positive forgiveness. After that, she told me that every time he hit her, she forgave him and let it go. How she could do that, only she knows. Then every, th every time he did or said anything kind, no matter how trifling, she would hug him or cover him with kisses or use any other gesture to let him know how much that kindness meant to her. She took nothing for granted. She sighed and told me that it took her seven long years. At this point, her eyes became watery, and so did mine. Seven long years, she told me, and now you wouldn't recognize the man. He's changed completely. We have such a precious, loving relationship now, and two wonderful children. Her face radiated the glow of a saint. I felt like getting down on my knees to bow to her. See that stool, she said, stopping me. He made that wooden meditation stool for me this week as a surprise. If it had been seven years ago, he would only have used it to hit me with. The lump in my throat cleared as I laughed with her. I admire that woman. She earned her own happiness, which was considerable, I would say, from the brightness of her features. And she changed a monster into a caring man. She helped another person magnificently. 
That was an extreme example of positive forgiveness, recommended only for those headed for sainthood. Nevertheless, it shows what can be achieved when forgiveness is joined with encouraging the good. Now, none of this tells us much about forces outside of our usual experiences, forces that might have it in for us. These are not stories of ghosts or spirits or even zombies. But do we need the objects of our compassion and forgiveness to only be humans? We know how well animals respond to qualities such as compassion and forgiveness. So why should it be different for those we can't normally see or hear? Are those in the spirit worlds really so different from us that they will respond to loving kindness with continued aggression and anger? Really? Through his profound experience in deep samadhi, the Buddha found no being is so different that it wishes for suffering and shuns happiness. The other way around from what we normally do. All beings want happiness and don't want suffering. This is even so for those spirits and the zombies. Our quest becomes how do we provide happiness and alleviate suffering in the best way we possibly can for all beings, not only those we are used to on an everyday basis. And the answer is through acting out of positive qualities like loving kindness, forgiveness and so on. We don't have to differentiate. We can learn to be like the Buddha and treat all beings equally. As an example of actually making offerings to spirits, there is a practice called sir, in which a practitioner offers aroma or food. For information on this, Lama Zoparamsha gives a commentary and describes how to do the practice in a teaching titled Sir Commentary, Practicing Aroma Charity for Spirits, on the site www.lamayeshi.com That's L-A-M-A-Y-E-S-H-E or one word. Lama Zopa describes the benefit of Sir practice like this. The benefits of Sir practice are very extensive. The main benefit is for other sentient beings, especially intermediate state beings, people who have died and not yet been able to find a new body and be reborn, to get food and Dharma teachings. The aroma that you offer serves as food for them, bringing them happiness, and the Dharma teachings they receive free them from the cause of all their torments and sufferings. Also, for hungry ghosts who are, un- are so incredibly hungry, searching for many years to find a tiny bit of spit, they receive your charity of food and of Dharma, and it pacifies their incredible suffering and also the causes of their suffering. Other sentient beings get so much help and benefit from your doing this practice. As I mentioned earlier, when someone you know has died, doing sir practice is a way to benefit them. However, doing sir practice is not exclusively for those who have died or are in the intermediate state. Another important benefit of sir practice, which I explained earlier in some detail, is repaying your karmic debts. Doing sir practice to repay your karmic debts is a way of solving or preventing many problems without creating the causes of future problems as you do so. This practice is also a way of collecting extensive merit and pacifying obstacles to your Dharma practice, projects or business. In this way, it brings success to all these endeavors. Furthermore, by making charity, it results in prosperity and wealth, so it naturally brings success in business and other projects. Doing Sir practice is also a method that causes you to be reborn in a pure land when you die. And this is just some of the benefits 
of doing Sir practice, but this is where we're going to have to leave the program today as time is up. Thanks for joining us, and I look forward to being with you again next week. Please dedicate all the positive potential from the program to gaining enlightenment for the benefit of all beings. Thank you, and goodbye. For more episodes, use the accessmedia.nz app for iOS and Android devices, or subscribe to this podcast via Spotify, iHeartRadio, or Apple Podcasts. This free FM podcast was brought to you with support from New Zealand On Air.